Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 10 of The Golden Bell, Part 1. The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2, by James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 14. The King's Fire. Sacred Marriage of the Fire God with a Woman. Thus far we have dealt mainly with those instances of the sacred marriage in which a human being is wedded to the divine powers of vegetational water. Now we pass to the consideration of a different class of cases in which the divine bridegroom is the fire and his bride a human virgin. Again, these cases are particularly important for our present inquiry into the early Latin kinship, since it appears that the old Latin kings were commonly supposed to be the offering of the fire god by mortal mothers. The evidence which points to this conclusion is as follows. Legend of a birth of King Servius Tullius from the fire. First, let us take the legend of the birth of King Servius Tullius. It is said that one day the virgin Ocrusia, a slave woman of Queen Tanaquil, the wife of King Tarquin the Elder, was offering as usual cakes and libations of wine on the royal hearth, when a flame in the shape of the male member shot out from the fire. Taking this for a sign that her handmaiden was to be the mother of a more than mortal son, the wise Queen Tanaquil bade the girl array herself as a bride and lie down beside the hearth. Her orders were obeyed. Ocrisia conceived by the god or spirit of the fire, and in due time brought forth Servius Tullius, who was thus born a slave, being the reputed son of a slave mother and a divine father, the fire god. His birth from the fire was attested in his childhood by a lambent flame which played about his head as he slept at noon in the king's palace. This story, as others have pointed out before, seems clearly to imply that the mother of Servius was a vestal virgin charged with the care and worship of the sacred fire in the king's house. Legend of the Birth of Romulus from the Fire Now in Promethean's History of Italy, cited by Plutarch, a similar tale was told of the birth of Romulus himself. It is said that in the house of the king of Alba, a flame like the male organ of generation hung over the hearth for many days. Learning from an oracle that a virgin should conceive by this phantom and bear a son of great valour and renown, the king bade one of his daughters submit to its embraces, but she disdained to do so, and sent her handmaid and said, Angry at her disobedience, her father ordered both the maidens to be put to death. 
but if Esther appeared to him in a dream, forbade the execution, and commanded that both the girls should be imprisoned until they had woven a certain web, after which they were to be given in marriage. But the web was never finished, for as fast as they wove it by day, other maidens, in obedience to the king's orders, unwove it at night. Meantime the handmaiden conceived by the fire of flame, and gave birth to Romulus and Remus. In this legend, as in the story of the birth of Servius Tullius, it is plain that the mother of the future king of Rome was both a slave and a priestess of Esther. Orthodox Roman tradition always admitted that she was a Vestal, but naturally enough represented her as a king's daughter rather than his slave. The god Mars, it was said, got her with child as she drew water in a sacred grove. However, when we compare this legend with the similar story of the birth of Servius, we may suspect that Promethean has preserved, though perhaps in a perverted form, an old feature of the Latin kingship, namely that one of the king's parents might be, and sometimes was, a slave. Whether that was so or not, such tales at least bear witness to an old belief that the early Roman kings were born of virgins and of the fire. Legend of the Birth of Caesellus from the Fire Similarly, Caesellus, the founder of Prenest, passed for a son of Vulcan. It was said that his mother conceived him through a spark which leapt from the fire and struck her as she sat by the hearth. She exposed a child near a temple of Jupiter, and he was found there beside a fire by some maidens who were going to draw water. In after life he proved his divine birth by working an appropriate miracle. When an infidel crowd refused to believe that he was the son of a god, he prayed to his father, and immediately the unbelievers were surrounded by a flame of fire. More than this, the whole of the Alban dynasty appeared to have traced their descent from a vestal, for the wife of King Latinus, the legendary ancestor, was named Amata, or Beloved, and this was the regular title bestowed on a vestal after her election, a title which cannot be fully understood, except in the light to the foregoing traditions which seem to show that the vestals were regularly supposed to be beloved by the fire god. Moreover, fire is said to have played round the head of Amata's daughter, Lavinia, just as it played round the head of the fire-born Servius Tullius, as the same prodigy was reported of Julius or Ascanius, the son of Aeneas. We may suspect that a similar legend was told of his miraculous conception at the hearth. The Vestal Virgins seem to have been regarded as the wives of the fire-god. Now we may take it as certain that the Romans and Latins would never trace the descent of their kings from Vestal Virgins unless they had thought that such a descent, far from being a stain, was under certain circumstances highly honourable. What the circumstances were that permitted a Vestal to become a mother, not only with impunity, but with honour and glory, appeared plainly from the stories of the birth of Caesillus, Romulus, and Servius Tullius. If she might not know a mortal man, she was quite free, and indeed was encouraged to conceive and bear a son to the fire-god. In fact, the legend suggests that the Vestals were regularly regarded as the fire-god's wives. This would explain why they were bound to chastity during their term of service. The bride must be true to a divine bridegroom, and the theory of chastity could be easily reconciled with the practice of maternity by allowing a man to masquerade as the fire-god at a sacred marriage. Just as in Egypt the king disguised himself as a god Ammon when he wedded the queen, or as among the Ue tribes the priest poses as a python god when he goes into the human brides of a serpent. 
thus the doctrine of the divine birth of kings presents no serious difficulty to people who believe that a god may be made flesh in a man and that a virgin may conceive and bear him a son of course the theory of the divine motherhood of the vestals applies only to the early regal and therefore prehistoric period under the republic the demand for kings had ceased and with it therefore the supply yet a trace of the old view of the vestals as virgin mothers lingered down to the latest times in the character of vesta herself that patroness in type for vesta always bore the official title of mother never that of virgin we may surmise that a similar belief and practice once obtained in attica for erichthonius king of athens is said to have been a son of the fire god Ephesius by the virgin goddess athena the story told of his miraculous birth from the ground which had been impregnated by the seed of the fire god is clearly a letter version devised to say the virginity of his mother the perpetual lamp of athena which burned in the erechtheum or house of erechtheus who was identical with erechthonius on the acropolis of athens may have answered to the perpetual fire of esther at rome and it is possible that the maidens called eriphorioi or eriphorioi who dwelt close to the erechtheum may at one time have personated athena and passed like the vestals for wives of the fire god rationalistic theory of the duties of the vestals rejected it has indeed been held that the vestals were of old the king's daughters who were kept at home and forbidden to marry for no other reason that they might devote themselves to the domestic duties of drawing water mobbing the house tending the fire and baking cakes but this rationalistic theory could hardly explain the superstitious horror which the infidelity of a vestal always excited in the roman mind customs which begin to reason seldom end in superstition it is likely therefore that the rule of chastity imposed on the vestals was based from the first on a superstition rather than on a mere consideration of practical convenience the belief that the vestals were the spouses of the fire god would explain the rule we have seen that the practice of marrying women to gods has been by no means uncommon if the spirit of the water has his human wife why not the spirit of the fire indeed primitive man has a special reason for thinking that the fire god should always be married what that reason is i will try to explain the vestal fire of latter times was a continuation of the fire on the king's earth but first it is necessary to apprehend clearly that the vestal fire of republican and imperial rome was strictly the successor or continuation of the fire which in the rebel period had burned on the king's earth that it was so appears plainly from the story of the birth of romulus and Servius tellius which show that Vesta was believed to be worshipped at the royal fireside by maidens who were either the king's daughters or his slaves. This conclusion is amply confirmed by a study at the temple of Vesta and the adjoining edifices in the Roman Forum. The round temple of Vesta, a copy of the ancient Italian hut. For the so-called temple of the goddess never was, strictly speaking, a temple at all, this fact we have on the authority of varro himself the greatest of roman antiquaries the little round building in which the sacred fire always burned was merely a copy of the round hut in which the king like his subjects had dwelt in days of old tradition preserved a memory of the time when its walls were made of wattled osiers and the roof was a thatch indeed with that peculiar clinging to the forms of the past which is characteristic of royalty and religion 
the innermost shrine continued down even to late times to be fashioned of the same simple materials the hut of romulus or what passed for it constructed of wood reeds and straw was always preserved and carefully repaired in the original style it stood on the side of the Palatine hill facing the circus maximus a similar hut roofed with thatch was in like manner maintained on the capitoline hill and traditionally associated with romulus the so-called temple of vesta in historical times stood not on any of the hills but in the forum at the northern foot of the palatine its situation in the flat ground is quite consistent with the view that the building represents the king's house of early though not of the very earliest times for according to tradition it was built by numa in this position between the palatine and the capital at the time when he united the two separate towns on the hills and turned the low swampy ground between them into their common place of assembly you too beside the temple of vesta the king built himself a house which is ever afterwards known as regia or palace formerly he had dwelt in the quirinal in after times this old palace of the kings was perhaps the official residence of their successor the king of the sacred rites adjoining it was the house of the vestals at first no doubt a simple and unpretentious edifice but afterwards a stately pile gathered round a spacious open court which must have resembled the closier of a medieval monastery we may assume that the kernel of this group of buildings was the round temple of vesta and that the hearth in it on which burned this sacred fire was originally the hearth of the king's house hut urns founded albano and rome the so-called temple was built on the model of the round huts of the latins it is proved by the discoveries made at an ancient necropolis near albano the ashes of the dead were here deposited in urns which are shaped like little round huts with conical roofs obviously in order that the souls of the dead might live in houses such as they had inhabited during life the roofs of these miniature dwellings are raised on cross beams sometimes with one or more holes to let out the smoke the door is fastened by a crossbar which is passed through a ring on the outside and tied to the two side posts in some of these hut urns the side posts are duplicated or even triplicated for the sake of ornament and it is probable that the ring of columns which encircled the little temple of vesta in historical times was merely an extension of the door posts of the prehistoric hut hut urns found in ancient latinum the necropolis in which these urns were found must be very ancient since it was buried under the streams of lava vomited by the alban mountain in eruption but the mountain has not been an active volcano within historical times unless indeed the showers of stones and the rain of blood often recorded as ominous prodigies by roman writers may be explained as jets of humus and red volcanic dust discharged by one of the craters the prehistoric burial ground lately discovered in the roman forum has yielded several hut urns of precisely the same shape as those of the alban cemetery hence we may infer with tolerable certainty that the earliest latin settlers both on the alban hills and at rome dwelt in round huts built of wattle and dab with peaked roots of thatch numerous crockery the primitive earthenware vessels used by the vestals if further evidence were needed to convince us that the round temple of vesta merely reproduced a roman house of the olden times it might be supplied by the primitive vessels of coarse earthenware in which the vestals always presented their offerings and which in memory of the heartlessness of an earlier age went by the name of numa's crockery 
a greek historian writing when rome was at the height of her power and glory under augustus praises the romans for the austere simplicity with which in an age of vulgar wealth and ostentation they continue to honour the gods of their fathers i have seen he said meals set before the gods in old-fashioned wooden tables in mats and earthenware dishes the food consisting of barley loaves and cakes and spelt and first fruits and such like things all plain and expensive and free from any touch of vulgarity and i have seen libations offered not in vessels of silver and gold but in little earthen cups and jugs and i heartily admire a people which thus walked in the ways of their fathers not deviating from ancient rites into extravagance and display specimens of this antique pottery have come to light of late years at the house of the vestals the temple of vesta and other religious centres in the forum others have been found previously on the esquiline hill and in the necropolis of albalonga we may conjecture that if the romans continue to serve the gods their meals in simple earthenware dishes long after they themselves quaffed their wine from goblets of crystal and gold or from marine cups with their cloudy iridescent hues of purple and white they did so not from any principle of severe good taste but rather from that superstitious fear of innovation which has embalmed in religious ritual as in amber so many curious relics of the past the old forms and materials of the vessels were consecrated by immemorial usage and might not be changed with impunity rude pottery used by the arval brothers indeed in the ritual of the arval brothers the holy pots themselves appear to have been an object of worship specimens of these pots have been found on the site of the sacred grove where the brothers performed their quaint service and they shed an interesting light on the conservatism of the roman religion some of them are moulded in the most primitive fashion by the hand without any mechanical appliance but most of them belong to a stage of art later indeed than this rude beginning yet earlier than the invention of the potter's wheel in order to give the vessels their proper shape and prevent the sides from collapsing wooden hoops were inserted in them and the marks made by these hops in the soft clay may still be seen on the inside of most of the pots found in the grove we may suppose that when the potter's wheel came into universal use the old art of making pottery by the hand was lost but as religion would have nothing to do with pots made in the new-fangled way the pious workman had to imitate the ancient ware as well as he could eking out his imperfect skill with the aid of wooden hoops perhaps the victores vestalium and the victores pontificium of whom we read in inscriptions were those potters who combining a retrograde art with sound religious principles provided the vestals and pontiffs with a coarse crockery so dear to gods and to antiquaries savage superstitions as to the making of pottery if that was so they may have had in the exercise of their craft to observe some such curious rules as are still observed in similar circumstances by the savage Yurikares, a tribe of indians living dispersed in the depths of beautiful tropical forests at the eastern foot of the bolivian andes we are told by an explorer that the manufacture of pottery is not an everyday affair with this superstitious people and accordingly they surround it with singular precautions the women who alone are entrusted with the duty go away very solemnly to look for the clay but they do so only when there is no crop to be gathered in the fear of thunder they betake themselves to the most sequestered spots of the forest in order not to be seen there they built a hut while they are at work they observe certain ceremonies and never open their mouth 
speaking to each other by signs, being persuaded that one word spoken would infallibly cause all their pots to break in the firing, and they do not go near their husbands, for if they did, all the sick people would die. Among the Baronga of South Africa, pottery is made by women only, and they prefer to employ a child under puberty to light the fire in which the pots are to be baked, because the child has pure hands, and the pots are therefore less likely to crack in the furnace than if the woman lit the fire herself. Chastity required in persons who handle dishes and food. If the reader rejects, then Roman potters cannot have been trammelled by superstitions like those which hamper the savage potters of America and Africa. I would remind him of the rules laid down by grave Roman writers for the moral guidance of cooks, bakers, and butlers. After mentioning a number of these writers, by name, Columella informs us that all of them are of opinion that he who engages in any one of these occupations is bound to be chaste and continent since everything depends on taking care that neither dishes nor the food should be handled by any one above the age of puberty or at least by any one who is not exceedingly absentious in sexual matters therefore a man or woman who is sexually unclean ought to wash in a river or running water before he touches the contents of the storeroom that is why there should be a boy or a maid to fetch from the storeroom the things that are needed when roman cooks bakers and butlers were expected to be so strict in the service of their human masters it might naturally be thought that the potters should be not less so whose business it was to fashion the rude yet precious vessels meet for the worship of the gods sanctity of the storeroom penis and the penates in a roman house if the storeroom penis of a roman house was deemed so holy that its contents could only be handled by persons ceremonially clean the reason was that the penates or god of the storeroom dwelt in it the domestic hearth where the household meals were cooked in the simple days of old was a natural altar of the penates their images together with those of the lares stood by it and shone in the cheerful glow of the fire when the family gathered round it in the evening thus in every house vesta the goddess of the hearth was intimately bound up with the penates or gods of the storeroom indeed she was reckoned one of them now the temple of vesta being nothing more than a type of the oldest form of roman house naturally had like an ordinary house its sacred storeroom and its penates or gods of the storeroom hence if in every common house strict chastity was theoretically at least expected of all who entered the storeroom we can well understand why such an obligation should have been laid on the vestals who had in their charge the holiest of all storerooms, the chamber which were popularly supposed to be preserved the talismans on which the safety of the state depended. Thus the temple of Vesta, with its perpetual fire and sacred storeroom, was merely a copy of the Roman king's house. Thus, on the whole, we may regard it as highly probable that the round temple of Vesta in the Forum, with its sacred storeroom and perpetual fire, was merely a survival under changed conditions of the old house of the roman kings which again may have been a copy of the still older house of the king's valba both were modelled on the round huts of wattled osiers in which the elite latins dwelt among the woods and hills of latinum in the days when the alban mountain was still an active volcano hence it is legitimate to compare the old legends of the royal hearth with the latter practice in regard to the hearth of vesta and from the comparison to explain if we can the meaning both the legends and of the practice. End of section 10
Section 11 of The Golden Bough, Part 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 15. The Fire Drill. Mode of rekindling the Vestal Fire at Room by Means of the Fire Drill. In historical times, whenever the Vestal Fire at Rome happened to be extinguished, the virgins were beaten by the pontiff, after which it was their custom, apparently, with the aid of the pontiff, to rekindle the fire by drilling a hole in a board of lucky wood till a flame was elicited by friction. The new fire thus obtained was carried into the temple of Vesta by one of the virgins in a bronze sleeve. The Use of the Fire Drill by Savages as this mode of producing fire is one of the most primitive known to man, and has been commonly employed by many savage tribes down to modern times, we need have no difficulty in believing that its use in the worship of Vesta was a survival from prehistoric ages, and that whenever the fire on the hearth for the Latin kings went out, it was regularly relit in the same fashion. The Fire Drill In its simplest form, the fire drill as the apparatus has been appropriately named by Professor E. B. Tyler, consists of two sticks, the one furnished with a point and the other with a hole. The point of the one stick is inserted into the hole of the other, which is laid flat on the ground, while the operator holds the pointed stick upright in position and twirls it rapidly between his hands till the rubbing of the two sticks against each other produces sparks and at last a flame. Many savages regard the two sticks of the fire drill as male and female, and the rubbing of the two together as a sexual union. Many savages see in this operation a resemblance to the union of the sexes, and have accordingly named the pointed stick the man and the hold stick the woman. Thus we are told that among the Thompson Indians of British Columbia, fire was obtained by means of the fire drill, which consisted of two dried sticks, each over a foot in length, and rounded off to less than an inch in diameter. One stick was sharpened at one end, while the other was marked with a couple of notches close to each other, one on the side and the other on top. The sharpest end of the first stick was placed in the top notch of the other stick, and turned rapidly between the straightened palms of both hands. The heat thus produced by the friction of the sticks caused sparks to fall down the side notch upon tinder placed underneath, which, when it commenced to smoke, was taken in the hands and blown upon until fanned into a flame. The tinder was dry grass the shredded dry bark of the sagebrush or cedar bark. The sharpened stick was called the man and was made of black pine root, tops of young yellow pine, heart of yellow pine cones, surface berry wood, etc. The notched stick was called the woman and was generally made of poplar root. However, many kinds of wood were used for this purpose. When hot ashes or a spark fell upon the tinder, they said, the woman has given birth. The Hopi Indians kindle fire ceremoniously by the friction of two sticks, which are regarded respectively as male and female. The female stick has a notch in it and is laid flat on the floor. The point of the male stick is inserted in the notch of the female stick and is made to revolve rapidly by twirling the stick between the hands. Pollen is added as a male symbol and the spark is caught in a tinder of shredded cedar bark. The Urubana tribe of Central Australia who also made fire by means of the fire drill, call the upright piece the child stick, while they give to the horizontal and notched piece the name of the mother stick, or the mother of the fire. 
So in the Murray Islands, Torres Straits, the upright stick is called the child, Willem, and the horizontal stick, the mother, Apu. In Mayborg, Torres Straits, on the other hand, the vertical stick is known as the male organ, Ini, and the horizontal stick as the whole, Sake. The Fire Drill Among the Arabs The ancient Bedouins kindled fire by means of the fire drill, which was composed of a horizontal stick, the Zendar, and an upright stick, the Zend. The science of language furnishes us with many parallels for this mode of regarding the two parts as male and female. The two parts of Locke are distinguished in like manner. The spark is, then, the child, Tiffel, compared also our German Schorbenmatter, Mattergewand. The sticks of making fire by friction are not taken from the same tree. On the contrary, they choose one as hard and tough as possible, and the other soft, which allows the hard one to fit into it more easily, and catches fire the quicker on account of its loose texture. The soft wood was naturally the horizontal stick, the zender, which the Arabs made out of Calotropis procura oshar, while for the upright stick they used a hard branch of marker. The Fire Drill in Africa The Ngambu of South Cameroons in West Africa formerly made fire by rubbing two sticks against each other. Of the sticks, the one, called the male Nishiol, was put into a hole of the other, which is called the female Nishiol. In East Africa, the Maasai men make fire by drilling a hole in a flat piece of wood with a hard-pointed stick. They say that the hard-pointed stick is a man, and that the flat piece of wood is his wife. The former is cut from Ficus Sycamorus and Echebergias P, the latter from many fibrous trees such as Cagelia africana, Cordiovalis, or Acacia albidia. The women get their fire from the one which has thus been kindled by the men. The Nandae similarly produce fire by rapidly drilling a hard-pointed stick into a small hole in a flat piece of soft wood. The hard stick is called the male Kirikit and the piece of soft wood, the female, Kuket. Among the Mandai, as appropriately among the Maasai, fire-making is an exclusive privilege of the men of the tribe. The Baganda of Central Africa also made fire by means of the fire-drill. They called the upright stick the male, and the horizontal stick the female. Among the Bantu tribes of southeastern Africa, when the native Africans used special fire, either in connection with sacrifice or the festival of first-fruits, is produced by a doctor, and in the following manner. Two sticks made of the Azwati tree, and called the husband and wife, are given to him by the chief. These sticks are prepared by the magicians, and are the exclusive property of the chief, the wife being the shorter of the two. The doctor cuts a piece off each stick, and proceeds to kindle fire in the usual manner, by revolving the one rapidly between the palms of his hands, while its end rests in a small hollow dug in the side of the other. After he has obtained fire, he gives it to his attendant, who gets the pots in order, everything ready for cooking, the newly reaped fruits. The sticks are handed back to the chief by the doctor, no other hand must touch them, and put away till they are acquired next season. They are regarded as in measure sacred, and no one except the chief's personal servant may go to the side of the hut where they are kept. After being repeatedly used for fire-making, the doctor disposes of what remains, and new ones are made and consecrated by the magician. A special pot is used for the preparation of the feast, and no other than it may be set on a fire produced from the husband and wife. 
When the feast is over, the fire is carefully extinguished, and the pot placed along with the sticks, where it remains untouched for another year. But even for the purposes of daily life, these tribes still kindle fire in this manner, if they happen to be without matches. A native takes two special sticks made of a light wood. One of these he points. This is called the male stick. He then makes a conical hole in the centre of the other stick, which is called the female. Placing the female stick on the ground, he holds it firmly by his feet. A native finds no difficulty in this, as he can easily pick things off the ground with his toes if his hands are full. He then places the pointed stick into a conical hole, and slowly twists the male stick between his hands. He does this while using a good deal of pressure, and the wood becomes powdered, lying round the revolving point in a little heap of dust. When he thinks he has made sufficient of the wood dust, he twirls the sticks very fast. In a moment the powder bursts into flame, which he uses to set fire to some dried grass. Fire Customs of the Herero The Damaras, or Herero of Damaraland, in southwestern Africa, maintain sacred fires in their villages, and their customs and belief in this respect present a close resemblance to the Roman worship of Esther. Fortunately, the Herero fire worship has been described by a number of independent witnesses, and as their accounts agree substantially with each other, we may assume that they are correct. The Country of Herero The people are a tall, finely built race of nomadic herdsmen belonging to the Bantu stock, who seem to have migrated into their present country from the north and east about 150 or 200 years ago. The desert character of the country and its seclusion from the outer world long combined to preserve the primitive manners of the inhabitants. The Herero are pastoral people. In their native state, the Herero are a purely pastoral people, possessing immense herds of cattle and flocks of sheep and goats, which are the pride and joy of their hearts, almost their idols. They subsist chiefly on the milk of their herds, which they commonly drink sour. Of the flesh they make but little use but they seldom kill any of their cattle, and never a cow, a calf, or a lamb. Even oxen and wethers are only slaughtered on solemn and festal occasions, such as visits, burials, and the like. Such slaughter is a great event in a village, and young and old flock from afar and near to partake of the meat. Huts and Villages of Herero Their huts are of a round beehive shape, about ten feet in diameter, the framework consists of stout branches, of which the lower ends are rammed into the ground, while the upper ends are bent together and tied with bark. A village is composed of a number of these round huts arranged in a circle about the cow's pen as a centre and surrounded by an artificial hedge of thorn bushes. At night the cattle are driven in through the hedge and take up their quarters in the open space round the cow's pen. Sacred fire of the Herrero village maintained in or before the hut of the chief's principal wife. The hut of the great or principal wife of the chief, built and furnished in a more elaborate style than the rest, regularly stands to the east of the cow's pen, in the direction of sunrise, so that from its position we can always learn approximately the season of the year when the village was founded. The chief or headman of the village has no special hut of his own. He passes the day in the hut of the great wife and the night calmly in one of the huts of his other wives in the northern semicircle, between the house of the great wife and the cow's pen, but somewhat nearer to the pen is a large heap of ashes on which, in good weather, 
a small faintly glimmering fire may be seen to burn at any time of the day the heap of ashes is the sacred earth okuruo the fire is the holy fire omorangere or omorangerero of the village the open space between the sacred hearth and the house of the great wife is known as the holy ground or the holy house otizero betwixt the hearth and the car's fold stands a great withered branch of the omamborombanga combretum primigenum the sacred tree of the rero of which they believe that both they and their cattle are descended the sacred fire and hearth among the herero when a branch of this tree cannot be obtained its place is taken by a bough of the omwampu tree grievous beck at night and in rainy weather the fire is transferred to the hut of the great wife where it is carefully kept alight according to another account the fire is regularly preserved in the house and a brand is only brought out into the open air when the cattle have been milked at morning and evening in order that in presence of the fire the cow may be healthy and give much milk the custom in this respect perhaps varies in different villages and may be determined in some measure by the climate the sacred fire is regarded as the centre of the village from it at evening the people fetch a light to kindle the fire on their own hearths for every householder has his own private hearth in front of his hut at the holy hearth are kept the most sacred possessions of the tribe to wit the bundle of sticks which represent their ancestors here sacrifices are offered and enchantments performed here the flesh of the victims is cooked here is the proper place of the chief here the elders assemble in council and judgment is given here strangers are received and ambassadors entertained at the banquets held on solemn occasions all may partake of the flesh whether they be friends or foes the stranger's curse would rest on the churl who should refuse him in just share and this curse the herero dreads above everything because he believes its effect to be infallible so great is the veneration felt by the natives for the sacred hearth when its hollowed bough that they dare not approach it without terrifying the deepest respect they take off their sandals throw themselves on the ground and pray their great ancestor tetemakuru to be gracious to them the horns of the oxen slaughtered at festivals lie beside the hearth the chief sits on the largest pair when he is engaged in performing his magical rites near the fire too is a stone on which none but the chief has a right to sit the sacred fire among the herero is watched and fed by the chief's eldest unmarried daughter who performs other priestly duties the duty of maintaining the sacred fire and preserving it from extinction is entrusted to the eldest unmarried daughter of the chief by his great wife if he has no daughter the task devolves on the unmarried girl who is next of kin to him she bears the title of ondanger derived from the name of the sacred fire omoranger besides keeping up the fire she has other priestly functions to discharge before the men start on a dangerous expedition she rubs the holy ashes on their foreheads when a woman brings her newborn infant to the sacred hearth to receive its name the maiden priestess or vessel as we may call her sprinkles water on both mother and child every morning when the cattle walk out of the fold she besprinkles the fast of them with a brush dipped in water when an ox dies by accident at the village she lays a piece of wood on its back praying at the same time for a long life plenty of cattle and so forth moreover she ties a double knot in her apron for the dead beast for a curse would follow if she neglected to do so 
Lastly, when the sight of the village is changed, the priestess walks at the head of the people and of the herds, carrying a firebrand from the old sacred hearth and taking the utmost care to keep it alight. The Herero Chief Acts as a Priest The chief or head man of the village is also the priest. He alone may perform religious ceremonies except as fall within the province of the Vestal Priestess, his daughter. In his capacity of priest, he keeps the sacred bundle of sticks which represent the ancestors, and at sacrifices he offers meat to them that they may consecrate it. When the old village is abandoned, it is his duty to carry, like Aeneas quitting the ruins of Troy, these rude penates to the new home. However, it is deemed enough if he merely places the holy bundle on his back and then hands it to a servant, who carries it for him. As a priest, he introduces the newborn children to the spirits of the ancestors of the sacred hearth and gives the infants their names. And as a priest, he is a cow to himself, whose milk no one else may drink. This milk is kept in vessels which differ from the ordinary milk vessels, not only in shape and size, but also being marked with the badge of his paternal clan. Fire taken from the chief's hearth by the founder of a new village. When a man goes forth from the village with his family and servants to herd the cattle on a distant pasture or to found another village, he takes with him a burning brand from the sacred hearth wherewith to kindle the holy fire in his new home. By doing so, he acknowledges himself the vassal of the chief from whose hearth he took the fire. In this way, a single village may give out swarm after swarm till it has become the metropolis or capital of a whole group of villages, the inhabitants of which recognize the supremacy of the parent community and regard themselves as all sitting round its sacred fire. It is thus that a village may grow into a tribe and its headman into a powerful chief, who by means of marriage, alliances, and the adhesion of weaker rivals, may extend his sway over alien communities and so gradually acquire the rank and authority of a king. The political evolution of the Herero has indeed stopped short of this final stage, but among the more advanced branches of the Bantu race, such as the Zulus and the Matabiles, it is possible that the kingship has developed along these lines. The combined office of chief and priest among the Herero descends in the male line. The possession of the sacred fire and of the ancestral sticks, carrying with it both political authority and priestly dignity, descends in the male line, hence generally passes from father to son. In any case, whether the deceased had a son or not, the double office of chief and priest must always remain in his paternal clan, Oruzo. A chief's sacred hearth abandoned for some time after his death. If it should happen that the clan becomes extinct by his death, the sacred fire is put out, the hearth destroyed, no brand is taken from it, and the sticks representing the ancestors are laid with the dead man in the grave. But should there be an heir, as usually happens, he takes a firebrand from the sacred hearth and departs with all the people to seek a new home, abandoning the old village for years. In time, however, they return to the spot, rebuild the huts on the same sites and inhabit them again. But in the interval, none of the kinsmen of the deceased may approach the deserted village under pain of occurring the wrath of the ghost. When the return at last takes place, and the people have announced their arrival to the dead chief at his grave, which is generally in the cattle pen, they make a new fire by the friction of the two sacred fire sticks on the old hearth, for it is not lawful to bring with them a brand from their last settlement. The Sacred Herrero Fire Rekindled by the Fire Drill 
if the sacred fire should go out through the neglect of the priestess a sudden shower of rain or any other accident the herero deem it a very evil omen the whole tribe is immediately summoned and large offerings of cattle are made in an expation then the fire is relit by means of the friction of two sacred fire sticks which have been handed down from father to son every chief possesses such fire sticks and keeps them tied up with the bundle of holy sticks that represent the ancestors one of the fire sticks is pointed the other has a hole in the middle and sometimes also a notch cut round it in the notch some fungus or rotten wood is placed as tinder the whole stick is held fast to the ground by the knees of the operator who inserts the point of the other stick in the hole and twirls it roughly between the palms of his hands in the usual way as soon as a spark is emitted it catches the tinder which can then easily be blown up into a flame thus it is from the tinder we are told and not from the sticks that the flame is elicited in this fashion if everything is very dry as it generally is in herero land the native gets fire in about a minute the names applied to the two sticks indicate that the pointed stick ondume is regarded as male and the whole stick otiya as female and that the process of making fire by the friction of the two is compared to the intercourse of the sexes the male fire stick made of the sacred omam borambonga tree as to the wood of which the fire sticks are made accounts differ according to dr h shins the old or female stick is of a soft wood the pointed or male stick of a hard wood generally of a sacred omamborombonga tree compretum primigenum according to mr c g butler neither of the sticks need to be of a special tree and any wood that happens to be at hand may be employed for the purpose only the wood of the thorny acacias which abound in the country appears to be unsuitable probably the rule mentioned by dr shins is the original one and if in some places the wood of the sacred tree has ceased to be used to light the holy fire the reason may be simply that the tree does not grow there and that accordingly the people are obliged to use such wood as they can find we have seen that a branch of the sacred omamborombonga tree is regularly planted beside the village hearth but that in default of it the people have to put up with a bough of another kind of tree the omawampo grievous beck such substitutions were especially apt to be forced on the herero in the southern part of the country where the omamborombonga tree is very rare and forests do not exist the larger trees growing singly or in clumps in the north on the other hand vegetation is much richer and regular woods are to be found here in particular the omamborombonga tree is one of the ornaments of the landscape it grows only beside watercourses and generally stands solitary surpassing a tall oak in height and rivaling it in girth indeed so thick is the trunk that where a hollowed out family could lodge in it unlike most trees in the country it is thornless whole forests of it grow to the eastward of herero land in the direction of lake nogami so close is the grain and so heavy the wood that some of the early explorers gave it the name of the iron tree it is well adapted to form the upright stick of the fire drill for which a hard wood is required herero tradition of the origin of men and cattle from the sacred omamborombonga tree the herero have a tradition that in the beginning they and their cattle and all footed beasts came forth from the omamborombonga tree in a single day whereas birds fish and creeping things sprang from the rain 
However, slightly different versions of the Rerogenesis appear to be current. As to the origin of men and cattle from the tree, public opinion is unanimous, but some dissenters hold that sheep and perhaps goats, but certainly sheep, issued from a flat rock in the north of the country. For some time past, unfortunately, the tree has ceased to be prolific. It is of no use waiting beside it in the hope of capturing such oxen and sheep as it might bear. Yet still the Herero testify great respect for the tree which they regard as their ancestor, Omokuru. To injure it is deemed a sacrilege which the ancestor will punish sooner or later. In passing it, they bow reverently and stick a bunch of green twigs or grass into the trunk or throw it down at the foot. They address the tree, saying, Uzira Tate, Nukarurume, Thou art holy, grandfather. And they even enter into conversation with it, giving the answers themselves in a changed voice. They hardly dare to sit down in the shadow. All this reverence they display for every tree of the species. Migration from one country to another sometimes involves a change of a sacred tree. On the whole, then, we may infer that so long as a Herero dwelt in a land where their ancestral tree abounded, they made the male fire stick from its wood, but that as they gradually migrated from a region of tropical rains and luxuriant forests to the arid mountains, open grasslands, and dry torrid climate to their present country, they had in some places to forgo its use and to take another tree instead. Similarly, the Aryan invaders of Greece and Italy were obliged, out of the southern sky, to seek substitutes for the sacred oak of their old northern home, and more and more as time went on, and their deciduous woods retreated up the mountain slopes. They found what they sought in the laurel, the olive, and the vine. Zeus himself had to put up with the white poplar at his great sanctuary of Olympia in the hot lowlands of Elis, and on summer days, when the light leaves of the poplar hardly stirred in the languid air, and the buzz of the flies was more than usually exasperating. He perhaps looked wistfully away to the Arcadian mountains, looming blue in the distance before a haze of heat, and sighed for their shadow and the coolness of their oak woods. The Worship of the Chief's Fire, a form of ancestor worship. Thus it appears that the sanctity ascribed by the Herero to the Chief's Fires springs from a custom of kindling it with the wood of their ancestral tree. In fact, the cult of the fire resolves itself into a form of ancestor worship. For the religion of the Herero, like that of all Bantu peoples, is first and foremost a propitiation of the spirits of their forefathers, conceived as powerful beings, able and willing to harm them. From use to death, the Herero live in constant dread of their ancestors, of Akuru, plural of Omokuru, who is sometimes seen and sometimes unseen, return to earth and play their descendants many a spiteful trick. They glide into the village, steal the milk, drive the cattle from the fold, and waylay women. More than that, they can inflict disease and death, decide the issue of war, and send it with hold rain at pleasure. They are the cause of every vexation and misfortune, and the whole aim of the living is by frequent sacrifices to mollify and appease the dead. The Sacred Hearth, a special seat of the ancestral spirits. Now the sacred hearth seems to be, in a special sense, the seat of the worship paid to the ancestral spirits. Here the head of the family sits and communes with his forefather, giving himself the answers he thinks fit. Hither the newborn child is brought with its mother to be introduced to the spirits and to receive its name, and the chief addressing his ancestors announces, To you a child is born in your village. May this village never come to an end. 
if the bride is conducted at a marriage and a sheep having been sacrificed its flesh is placed on the holy bushes at the hearth either the sick are carried to be commended to the care of their ghostly kinsmen as a sufferer is borne round and round the fire his friends chant see father we have come here with this sick man to you that he may soon recover sacred sticks representing the deceased ancestors of the herero but the most tangible link between the worship of the fire and the worship of the dead is furnished by the sacred sticks representing the ancestors which are kept in a bundle together with the two sticks used for kindling the fire by friction each of these rude oils or lairs as we may call them symbolizes a definite ancestor of the eternal clan and taken together they may be regarded as the most sacred possession of a family they stand in the closest relation to the holy earth or rather to the priestly dignity and must therefore always remain in the same paternal clan these sticks are cut from trees or bushes which are dedicated to the ancestors and they represent the ancestors at the sacrificial meals for the cooked flesh of the victims is always set before them first many people always keep these sticks tied up in a bundle with straps and hung with amulets in the branches of the sacrificial bushes which stand on the sacred hearth or karoo the sacrificial bush serves to support the severed pieces of the victim and thus in a measure represents an altar or table of sacrifice when after an absence of years a people return to a village where the chief died and was buried a new fire is kindled by friction on the old earth the flesh of the first animal slaughtered here is cooked in a particular vessel and the chief hands a portion of it to every person present an image consisting of two pieces of wood supposed to represent the household deity or rather deified parent is then produced and moistened in the platter of each individual the chief then takes the image and after affixing a piece of meat to the upper end of it he plants it in the ground on the identical spot where his parent was accustomed to sacrifice the first pail of milk produced from the cattle is also taken to the grave a small quantity is poured on the ground and a blessing asked on the remainder each clan the writer adds has a particular tree or shrub consecrated to it and of this tree or shrub the two sticks representing the deceased are made the sacred sticks representing the ancestors are probably the fire sticks which were used to kindle fresh fire in the village after death in these accounts the sacred sticks which stand for the ancestors and to which the meat of sacrifices is first offered are distinguished expressly or implicitly from the sacred sticks which are used to make the holy fire other writers however identify the two sets of sticks thus we are told that the herero make images of their ancestors as follows they take the two sticks with which they make fire and tie them together with a fresh wisp of corn and they worship this object as their ancestor they may approach it only on their knees for hours together they sit before it and talk with it if you ask them where they imagine their ancestors to be since they cannot surely be these sticks they answer that they do not know the sticks are kept in the house of the great wife again another writer defines the ondume or male fire stick as a stick representing an omokuro i.e ancestor deity with which the otisia the holy fire is made again the reverend g Vey, in describing the ceremonies observed at the return to a deserted village where an ancestor omokuro is buried tells us that they bring no fire with them but holy fire 
must now be obtained from the Umukuru. This is done with the Odume and the Otiza. The sacred sticks representing ancestors are probably old fire sticks. The meaning of these two words plainly shows that the first represents the Omukuru and the other his wife. The same excellent authority defines the Ozondume as sticks which represent the Ovakuru, i.e. ancestors, deities, and Ozondume is simply the plural of Ondume, the male fire stick. Hence it appears highly probable that the sticks representing the ancestors are in fact nothing but the male fire sticks, each of which was cut to make a new fire on the return to the old village after a chief's death. The stick would be an appropriate emblem of the deceased, who had been in his lifetime the owner of the sacred fire, and who now after his death bestowed it on his descendants by means of the friction of his wooden image. And the symbolism will appear all the more natural when we remember that the male fire stick is generally made from the ancestral tree, and the process of fire making is regarded by the herrero as the beginning of a child, and that their name for the stick, according to the most probable etymology, signifies the begetter. Such sticks would be far too sacred to be thrown away when they had served their immediate purpose of kindling a new fire, and thus in time a whole bundle of them would accumulate, each of them recalling, in a sense representing, one of the great forefathers of the tribe. When the old sticks had ceased to be used as firelighters, and were preserved merely as memorials of the dead, it is not surprising that their original function should be overlooked by some European observers, who have thus been led to distinguish them from the sticks by which the fire is actually produced to the present day. Sacred Fireboards Among the Koryaks and Chakis of Northeastern Asia Amongst the Koryaks of Northeastern Asia, when the sacred fireboards, roughly carved in human form, are so full of holes that they can no longer be used for the purpose of kindling fire. They are still kept as holy relics in a shrine near the door of the house, and a stranger who observed the respect with which they are treated, but did not know their history, might well mistake them for vicars of worshipful ancestors and never guess the practical purpose which they once served as firelighters. A Koryak family regards a sacred fireboard not only as a deity of the household fire, the guardian of the family hearth, but also as a guardian of the reindeer, and they call it the master of the herd. It is supposed to protect the reindeer from wolves and from sickness, and to prevent the animals from straying away and being lost. When a reindeer is slaughtered, the sacred fireboard is taken out and smeared with the blood. The maritime Koryaks, who do not live by reindeer, regard the sacred fireboard as a master of the underground house, and the helper in the hunt of sea mammals. They call it father, and feed it from time to time with fat, which they smear on its mouth. Among the neighbouring Chukchis, in northeastern extremity of Asia, similar ideas and custom attain in respect to the fireboards. These are roughly carved in human form, and personified, almost deified, as the supernatural guardians of the reindeer. The holes made by drilling in the board are deemed the eyes of the figure, and the squeaking noise produced by the friction of the fire drill in the hole is thought to be its voice. At every sacrifice, the mouth of the figure is greased with tallow, or with the marrow of bones. When a new fire board is made, it is consecrated by being smeared with the blood of a slaughtered reindeer, and the owner says, Enough, take up your abode here, 
Then the other five boards are brought to the same place and set side by side on the ground. The owner says, Ho! Oh, these are your companions. See that I always find easily every kind of game. Next he slaughters another reindeer and says, Hi! Since you are one of my young men, go and drive the herd hither. Then after a pause, he asks the fireboard, Have you brought it? To which in the name of the fireboard he answers, I have. Thereupon speaking in his own person, he says, Then catch some reindeer. It seems that you will keep a good watch over the herd. There, from the actual chief of the fireboards, you may learn wisdom. These sacred fireboards were often handed down from generation to generation as family heirlooms. During the carving season, they are taken from their bag and placed behind the flame in the outer tent in order that they may protect the dams. The Evolution of a Fire God or Fire Goddess These Kodiak and Chukchi customs illustrate the evolution of a fire god into the patron deity of a family and his representation in human form by the board which is used in fire-making. As a fireboard is that part of the kindling apparatus which is commonly regarded as female, in contradistinction to the drill, which is regarded as male, we can easily understand why the deity of the fire should sometimes, as in Rome, be conceived as a goddess rather than as a god. Whereas if the drill itself were viewed as the essential part of the apparatus, we should expect to find a fire god, and not a fire goddess. End of chapter 15 and end of section 11. Section 12 of The Golden Bow, Part 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information on the volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 16. Father Jove and Mother Vesta Similarity between the fire customs of the Herero and the ancient Latins The reader may remember that the preceding account of the fire customs of the Herero was introduced for the sake of comparison with the Latin worship of Vesta. The points of similarity between the two will now be indicated. In the first place we have seen reason to hold that the ever-burning Vestal fire at Rome was merely a survival of the fire on the king's hearth. So among the Herero, the sacred fire of the village is the chief's fire, which is kept burning or smouldering in his house by day and by night. In Rome, as in Hereroland, the extinction of the fire was regarded as an evil omen, but had to be expiated by sacrifices. A new fire was procured, in primitive fashion, by twirling the point of one stick in the hole of another. The Roman fire was fed with the wood of the sacred oak tree, just as the African fire is kindled with the wood of the sacred Omambarabongo tree. Beside both were kept the images of the ancestors, the Lares at Rome, the Ozontume in Herararland. The king's house which sheltered the fire and the images was originally in Italy, where the chief's hut still is in Herararland, a circular hut of osiers, not an ancient dreamer's thought, because the earth is round, nor yet because a circle is a symbol of rest but simply because it is both easier and cheaper to build a round hut than a square. The Roman Vestals, or some of them, appear to have been originally the king's daughters. Further, in Rome, the sacred fire was tended, as it still is in Herero land, by unmarried women, 
and as the Herrera priestesses are the chief's daughters, so we may conjecture it was with some at least of the Vestals among the ancient Latins. The Roman Vestals appear to have been under the Patria Potestas of the king, and in Republican times of the Pontifex Maximus, who succeeded to some of the king's functions. But if they were under the Patria Potestas of the king, they must have been either his wives or daughters. As virgins they cannot have been his wives. It remains, therefore, that they were his daughters. Various circumstances confirm this view. Their house at Rome, as we saw, always adjoined the Regia, the old palace of the kings. They were treated with marks of respect usually accorded to royalty, and the most famous of all the Vestals, the mother of Romulus, was said to be a daughter of the king of Alba. The custom of putting an unfaithful vessel to death by immuring her in a subterranean chamber may have been adopted in order to avoid the necessity of taking the life of a princess by violence for as we shall learn later on there is a very widespread reluctance to spill royal blood rites performed by the vestals for the fertility of the earth and the fecundity of cattle amongst the herero the chief's daughter who tends the holy fire has also to perform certain priestly rites which have for their object the prosperity and multiplication of the cattle so too it was with the roman vestals on the fifteenth of april every year pregnant cows were sacrificed to the earth goddess the unborn calves were torn from their mother's wombs the chief vestal burned them and kept the rashes for use at the shepherd's festival of the parulia this sacrifice of pregnant cows was a fertility charm designed by a curious application of homeopathic magic to quicken both the seed in the ground and the wombs of the cows and the ewes at the Perilia, held on the 21st of April, the Vestals mixed the ashes of the unborn calves with the blood of a horse which had been sacrificed in October, and this mixture they distributed to shepherds, who fumigated their flocks with it as a means of ensuring their fecundity and a plentiful supply of milk. The Vestals were probably regarded as embodiments of Vesta, who was a mother goddess, the bestower of offspring on cattle and women. Strange as at first it may seem to find holy virgins assisting in operations intended to promote the fertility of the earth and of cattle, this reproductive function accords perfectly with the view that they were of old the wives of the fire god and the mothers of kings. On that view also, we can understand why down to imperial times the Vestals adorned the male emblem of generation, and why with Vesta herself, the goddess of whom they were the priestesses and probably the embodiments, was worshipped by the Romans not as a virgin, but as a mother. She was sometimes identified with Venus. Like Diana, and whom she was identified at Nemi, she appeared to have been a goddess of fecundity, who bestowed offspring both on cattle and on women. That she was supposed to multiply cattle is indicated by the ceremonies which the Vestals performed in April. That she made women to be mothers is hinted at, not obscurely, by the legends of the birth of the old Latin kings. Custom of leading a bride round the fire, perhaps a fertility charm. The ancient Aryan practice of leading a bride thrice round the hearth of her new home may have been intended not merely to introduce her to the ancestral spirits who had their seats there, but also to promote conception, perhaps by allowing one of these very spirits to enter into her and be born again. When the ancient Hindu bridegroom led his bride round the fire, he addressed the fire god Agni with the words, Mouse thou give back, Agni, to the husband, the wife together with offspring. When a Slavonian bride enters her husband's house after marriage, 
she is laid thrice round the hearth then she must stir the fire with the poker saying as many sparks spring up so many cattle so many male children shall live in the new home and mostar in herzegovina the bride seats herself on a bag of fruit beside the hearth in a new home and pokes the fire thrice while she does so they bring her a small boy and set him on her lap she turns a child thrice round in order that she may give birth to male children still more clearly does belief in the impregnation of a woman by fire come out in another south slavonian custom when a wife wishes to have a child she will hold a vessel full of water beside the fire on the hearth while her husband knocks two burning brands together so that the sparks fly out when some of them have fallen into the vessel the woman drinks the water which has thus been fertilized by the fire the same belief seems still to linger in england for there is a lincolnshire saying that if a woman's apron is burned above the knee by a spark or red-hot cinder flying out of a fire she will become a mother thus the superstition will gave rise to the stories the birth of the old roman kings holds this ground to this day in europe even in our own country so indestructible are the crude fancies of our savage forefathers thus we may safely infer that the old practice of leading a bride formerly to or round the hearth was designed to make her fruitful through the generative virtue ascribed to the fire the custom is not confined to peoples of the iron stock for it is observed also by the estonians and the Wotyaks of russia as we have seen by the herero of south africa it expresses in daily life the same idea which is embodied in the myth of the birth of Servius tullus and the other latin kings whose virgin mothers conceived through contact with the spark or tongue of fire newborn children brought to the hearth as a mode of introducing them to the ancestral spirits accordingly where beliefs and customs of this sort have prevailed it is easy to understand why newborn children should be brought to the hearth and why their birth should be solemnly announced to the ancestors this is done by herero and in like manner on the fifth or seventh day after a birth the ancient greeks used to run naked round the hearth with the newborn babe in their arms this greek ceremony may perhaps be regarded as merely a purification in other words as a means of keeping at bay the demons who lie in wait for infants certainly in other parts of the world a custom has prevailed of passing a newly born child backwards and forwards through the smoke of the fire for the express purpose of warding off evil spirits or rather baleful influences yet on the analogy of the preceding customs we may conjecture that a practice of solemnly bringing infants to the domestic hearth has also been resorted to as a mode of introducing them to the spirits of their fathers in russia the old belief that the souls of the ancestors were somehow in the fire on the hearth has left traces of itself down to the present time thus in the nijagorod government it is still forbidden to break up the smouldering faggots in a stove because to do so might cause the ancestors to fall through into hell and when a russian family moves from one house to another the fire is raked out of the old stove into a jar and solemnly conveyed to the new one where it is received the words welcome grandfather to the new home reasons why a procreative virtue was ascribed to fire but why it may be asked should procreative virtue be attributed to the fire which at first sight appears to be a purely destructive agent and why in particular should the ancestral spirits be conceived as present in it two different reasons perhaps led savage philosophers to these conclusions 
the process of making fire by frictions seems to the savage an act of generation in the first place the common mode of making fire by means of the fire drill has suggested as we have seen to many savages the notion that fire is the child of the fire sticks in other words that the rubbing of the fire sticks together is a sexual union which begets offspring in the shape of a flame this of itself suffices to impress on the mind of a savage the idea that a capacity of reproduction is innate in the fire and consequently that a woman may conceive by contact with it strictly speaking he ought perhaps to refer this power of reproduction not to the fire but to the fire sticks but savage thought is in general too vague to distinguish clearly between cause and effect if he thinks the matter out as he may do so if he is more than usually reflective the savage will probably conclude that fire exists unseen in all wood and is only elicited from it by friction so that the spark or flame is a child not so much the fire sticks as the parent fires in them but this refinement of thought may well be above the reach even of a savage philosopher again the fire was associated with the ancestors through the sacred ancestral tree which furnished either the fuel or the fire sticks the second reason which seems to have led early man to associate the fire with the souls of his ancestors was a superstitious veneration for the ancestral tree which furnished either the fuel or the sacred fire or the material out of which he carved one or both of the fire sticks among the herero as we saw the male fire stick commonly is or used to be made out of the holy oromorombongo tree from which they believe that they and their cattle sprang in days of old hence nothing could be more natural than that they should regard the fire produced by the friction of a piece of the ancestral tree as akin to themselves the offspring of the same mighty forefather to wit the sacred tree similarly the vestal fire at rome was fed with the wood of the oak the sacred tree of jupiter and the first romans are described as born of the tree trunks and the heart of oak no wonder then that the latin kings who claimed to represent jupiter and in that capacity masqueraded in his costume and made mock thunder showed pride of themselves on being sprung from a fire which was fed with the wood of the god's holy tree such an origin was only another form of descent from the oak and from the god of the oak jupiter himself esthonian marriage custom the theory that impregnation by fire is really impregnation by the wood of the tree with which the fire is kindled derives some confirmation from a custom which is observed at marriage by some of the Estonians in the neighbourhood of Oberpalen. The bride is escorted to a tree, which is thereupon cut down and burned. When the fire blazes up, she is led thrice round it, and placed between three armed men, who clash their swords over her head, while the women sing a song. Then some coins are thrown into the fire, and when it has died out they are recovered and knocked into the stump of the tree, which was cut down to serve as fuel. This is clearly a mode of rewarding, first the fire, and next the tree, with some benefit they have conferred on the bride, but in early society husband and wife desire nothing so much as offspring. This therefore may very well be the benefit for which the Estonian bride repays the tree. The conception of the fire mother intimately bound up with that of the female fire stick in the fire drill. Thus far we have regarded mainly the paternal aspect of the fire, which the Latins mythically embodied in Jupiter, that is literally Father Jove, the god of the oak. 
The maternal aspect of the fire was for them represented by Mother Vesta, as they called her, and as the Roman king stood for Father Jove, so his wife or daughter, the practice on this point appears to have varied, stood for Mother Vesta, sometimes, as we have seen, the Vestal Virgins, the priestesses, or rather incarnations of Vesta, appear to have been the daughters, not the wives of the king. But on the other hand, there are grounds for thinking that the wife of King Latinus, the legendary ancestor of the Latins, was traditionally regarded as a Vestal, and the analogy of the Flamen Dialis with his wife, the Flamenica, as I shall show presently, points also to a married pair of priestly functionaries, concerned with the kindling and maintenance of the sacred fire. However that may have been, we may take it as probable that the notion of the fire mother was intimately associated with, if it did not spring directly from, the female fire stick of the fire drill, just as the conception of the fire father was similarly bound up with the male fire stick. The fire father and the fire mother represented by a priest and priestess who together made the sacred fire by means of the fire drill. Further, it seems that these mythical beings, the fire father and the fire mother, were represented in real life by a priest and a priestess, who together made the sacred fire, the priest probably twirling the pointed male stick, where the priestess held fast on the ground the hold female stick, ready to blow up into a flame the spark which fell on the tinder. In the composite religion of Rome, formed like the Roman state by the fusion of several tribes, each with its own gods and priests, such pairs of fire priests may at first have been duplicated. In one or more of the tribes which afterwards made up the Roman commonwealth, the function of kindling the holy fire of oak was perhaps assigned to the Flamandalus and his wife the Flamenica, the living representatives of Jupiter and Juno. And if, as some scholars think, the name Flamen comes from flare, to blow up, the derivation would fit well with this theory. But in historical Rome, the duty of making the sacred fire lay with the Vestal Virgins and the chief pontiff. The mode in which they shared the work between them is not described by ancient writers, but we may suppose that one of the virgins held the board of lucky wood on the ground, while the pontiff inserted the point of a peg into the hole of the board, and made the peg revolve rapidly between the palms of his hands. When the likeness of this mode of producing fire to the intercourse of the sexes had once struck people, they would deem it unnatural, and even decent for a woman to usurp the man's function of twirling a pointed male stick. But the Vestals certainly helped to make fire by friction. It would seem, therefore, that the part they took in the process can only have been the one I have conjecturally assigned to them. At all events, the conjecture is supported by the following analogies. Among the Dejakuns, fire is made by the leader and his unmarried daughter. The Dejakuns, a wild tribe of the Malay Peninsula, are in the habit of making fire by friction. A traveller has described the custom as follows. When a troop was on a journey and intended either to pitch a temporary camp or to make a longer settlement, the first camp fire was kindled for good luck by an unmarried girl with the help of the fire drill. Generally, this girl was the daughter of the man who served the troop as leader. It was deemed of special importance that on the first night of the settlement, the fire of every band should be lit by the unmarried daughter of a leader. But she might only discharge his duty if she had not her monthly sickness on her at the time. This custom is all the more remarkable inasmuch as the Junkans, in their migrations, always carried a smouldering rope of bark with them. When the fire was to be kindled, the girl took the piece of soft wood and held it on the ground, while her father, or any other married man, 
trailed the vertical bore upon it. She waited for the spark to spring from the wood and fanned it into a flame, either by blowing on it or by waving the piece of wood quickly about in her hand. For this purpose she caught the spark in a bundle of teased bark and exposed it to a drought of air. Fire so produced was employed to kindle the other fires for that night. They ascribed it to good luck in cooking and a greater power of keeping off tigers and so forth, and the first fire had been kindled by a spark from the smoldering bark rope. This account suggests a reason why a holy fire should be tended by a number of virgins. One or more of them might at any time be incapacitated by a natural infirmity for the discharge of the sacred duty. Among the Slavs of the Balkans, fire is made by a young girl and boy. Again, the Slavs of the Balkan Peninsula ascribe a healing or protective power to living fire, and when an epidemic is raging in a village, they will sometimes extinguish all the fires on the hearths and produce a living fire by the friction of wood. At the present day, this is done by various mechanical devices, but the oldest method, now almost obsolete, is said to be as follows. A girl and a boy between the ages of 11 and 14, having been chosen to make the fire, are led into a dark room, where they must strip themselves of all their clothes without speaking a word. Then two perfectly dry cylindrical pieces of lime wood are given them, which they must rub rapidly against each other, turn about, till they take fire. Tinder is then lit at the flame and used for the purpose of healing. This mode of kindling the living fire is still practiced in the Shara Mountains of Old Servia. The writer who describes it witnesses some years ago the use of the sacred fire in the village of Setonji at the foot of Homali Mountains, in the heart of the great Serbian forest. But on that occasion the fire was made in the manner described, not by a boy and girl, but by an old woman and an old man. Every fire in the village had brutally been extinguished, and was afterwards relit with a new fire. Among the Ketchens, fire is made by a man and woman jointly. Among the Ketchens of Burma, when people take solemn possession of a new house, a new fire is made in front of it by a man and woman jointly. A dry piece of bamboo is pegged down on the ground. The two fire-makers sit down facing each other at either end of it, and together rub another piece of bamboo on the horizontal piece, one of them holding the wrists of the other and both pressing down firmly till fire is elicited. Thus the conception of the fire-sticks as male and female is carried out by requiring the male stick to be worked by a man and the female stick to be worked by a woman but opinions differ as to whether the fire-makers should be married or single. In the first and least of these customs, it is plain that the conception of the fire-sticks as male and female has been logically carried out by requiring the male fire-stick to be worked by a man and the female fire-stick to be held by a woman. But opinions seem to differ on the question whether the fire-makers should be wedded or single. The Jakuns prefer that the man should be married and the woman unmarried. On the other hand, the Slavs of the Shah Mountains clearly think it better that both should be single, since they entrust the duty of making the fire to a boy and girl. In so far as the man's part in the work is concerned, some of our Scottish Highlanders agreed with the Dijonkins that the other end of the world, for the natives of Lewis, did also make use of a fire called Tinigin, i.e. a forced fire, or fire of necessity, which are used as an antidote against the plague or moraine in cattle and it was performed thus. All the fires in the parish were extinguished, then eighty-one married men, being thought the necessary number for effecting this design, took two great planks of wood, and nine of them were employed by turns, who, by their repeated efforts, rubbed one of the planks against the other until the heat thereof produced fire. And from this forced fire, 
Each family is supplied with new fire, which is no sooner kindled than a potful of water is quickly set on it, and afterwards sprinkled upon the people infected with the plague, or upon the cattle that have the moraine. In this they all say they find successful by experiment. It is practised in the mainland, opposite to the south of Sky, within these thirty years. On the other hand, the Germans of Hilberstadt sided with the South Slavs on this point, for they caused the forced fire, or need fire, as it is commonly called, to be made by two chaste boys, who pulled at a rope which ran round a wooden cylinder. The theory and practice of the Basutos in South Africa were similar. After a birth had taken place, they used to kindle the fire of the hut afresh, and for this purpose it was necessary that a young man of chaste habits should rub two pieces of wood quickly, one against another, until a flame sprung up, pure as himself. It was firmly believed that a premature death awaited him who should dare to take upon himself this office after having lost his innocence. As soon, therefore, as a birth was proclaimed in the village, the fathers took their sons to undergo the ordeal. Those who felt themselves guilty confessed their crime, as submitted to be scourged, rather than expose themselves to the consequence of a fatal temerity. Reasons for entrusting the making of fire to unmarried boys and girls It is not hard to divine why the task of twirling the male fire-stick in the hole of the female fire-stick should by some people be assigned to married men. The analogy of the process to the intercourse of the sexes furnishes an obvious reason. It is less easy to understand why other people should prefer to entrust the duty of unmarried boys. But probably the preference is based on a belief that chastity leaves the boys without a stock of reproductive energy, which they may expand on the operation of fire-making, whereas married men dissipate the same energy in their channels. A somewhat similar train of thought may explain a rule of virginity enjoined on women who assist in the production of fire by holding the female fire-stick on the ground. As a virgin's womb is free to conceive, so it might be thought, will be the womb of the female fire-stick which she holds. Whereas, had the female fire-maker been already with child, she could not be re-impregnated, and consequently the female fire-stick could not give birth to a spark. Thus, in the sympathetic connection between the fire-sticks and the fire-makers, we seem to reach the ultimate origin of the ordeal of the Vestal Virgins. They had to be chaste, because otherwise they could not light the fire. Once when the sacred fire had gone out, the Vestal in charge of it was suspected of having brought about the calamity by her unchastity, but she triumphantly repelled the suspicion by eliciting a flame from the cold ashes. Ideas of the same primitive kind still linger among the French peasantry, who think that if a girl can blow up a smouldering candle into a flame, she is a virgin, but that if she fails to do so, she is not. In ancient Greece, none but persons of pure life were allowed to blow up the holy fire with their mouths. A vile man who had polluted his lips was deemed unworthy to discharge the duty. The Holy Fire and Virgins of St. Bridget in Ireland the French superstition, which I have just mentioned, may well date from druidical times, for there are some grounds for thinking that among the old Celts, as among their near kinsmen, the Latins, holy fires were tended by virgins. In our own country, perpetual fires were maintained in the temples of a goddess whom the Romans identified with Minerva, but whose native Celtic name seems to have been Bridget. Like Minerva, Bridget was a goddess of poetry and wisdom, and she had two sisters also called Bridget, who presided over Leechcraft and Smithcraft, respectively. This appears to be only another way of saying that Bridget was a patroness of bards, physicians, and smiths. 
now at Kildare in Ireland, the nuns of St. Bridget, tentative of perpetual holy fire down to the suppression of the monasteries under Henry VIII, and we can hardly doubt that in doing so they merely kept up, under a Christian name, an ancient pagan worship of Bridget, in her character of a fire goddess or patroness of smiths. The nuns were nineteen in number. Each of them had the care of the fire for a single night in turn, and on the twentieth evening the last nun, having heaped wood on the fire, used to say, Bridget, take charge of your own fire, for this night belongs to you. She then went away, and next morning they always found the fire still burning and the usual quantity of fuel consumed. Like the vestal fire at Rome in the old days, the fire of St. Bridget burned within a circular enclosure made of stakes and brushwood, and no male might set foot inside the fence. Not to breathe on a holy fire the nuns were allowed to fan the fire or blow it up with bellows, but they might not blow on it with their breath. Similarly, it is said that the Balkan Slavs will not blow with their mouths on the holy fire of the domestic earth. A Brahmin is forbidden to blow a fire with his mouth, and among the Parsis, the priests have to wear a veil over their mouth lest they should defile the sacred fire by their breath. Other Perpetual Fires in Ireland the custom of maintaining a perpetual fire was not peculiar to Kildare, but seems to have been common in Ireland, for the native records show that such fires were kept up in several monasteries, in each of which a small church of oratory was set apart for the purpose. This was done, for example, at the monasteries of Saekiran, Kilmainham, and Inishmaray. We may conjecture that these holy fires were merely survivals of the perpetual fires which in pagan times had burned in honour of Bridget. The view that Bridget was a fire goddess is confirmed by the observation that in the Christian calendar her festival falls a day before Ganelmas, and the custom observed at that season by Celtic peasantry seemed to prove that she was a goddess of the crops as well as of fire. If that were so, it is another reason for comparing her to Vesta, whose priestesses performed ceremonies to fertilize both the earth and the cattle. Some bridges fire perhaps fed with oak wood. Further, there are some grounds for connecting Bridget, Lay Vesta, with the oak. For at Kildare, her Christian namesake, St. Bridget, otherwise known as St. Bride, or St. Bridget, built her church under an oak tree which existed till the 10th century, and gave its name to the spot. For Kildare is Sildara, the church of the oak tree. The church of the oak may well have displaced a temple or sanctuary of the oak, wherein druidical days the holy fire were fed like the vestal fire at Rome, with the wood of the sacred tree. Early Irish Monasteries Built in Oak Groves We might suspect that a conversion of this sort was often effected in Ireland by the early Christian missionaries. The monasteries of Derry and Durrow, founded by St. Columba, were both named after the oak groves amidst which they were built, and at Derry the saints spared the beautiful trees and strictly enjoyed his successors to do the same. In his old age, when he lived in exile on the shores of the bleak storm-swept isle of Iona, his heart yearned for the home of his youth among the oak groves of Ireland, and he gave expression to the yearning in passion of verse. That spot is the dearest on Erin's ground, for the treasures that peace and purity lend, for the hosts of bright angels that circle it round, protecting its borders from end to end. The dearest of any on Erin's ground, for its peace and its beauty I gave it my love. Each leaf of the oaks around Derry is found to be crowded with angels from heaven above. 
my dairy my dairy my little oak grove my dwelling my home and my own little cell may god the eternal in heaven above send death to thy foes and defend thee well the feeling of the same sort came over a very different exile in a very different scene one growing old amid the turmoil the gaieties the destructions of paris he remembered the german oak woods of his youth a cat inst ein schoss vaterland der eichenbaum Persian Priestesses of Fire Among the Incas of Peru Far from the oaks of Erin, and the saint's last home among the stormy Hebrides, a sacred fire has been tended by holy virgins, with statelier rites and more solemn fanes, under the equinoctial time. The Incas of Peru, who deemed themselves the children of the sun, procured a new fire from their great father at the solstice in june a midsummer day they kindled it by holding towards the sun a hollow mirror which reflected his beams on a tinder of cotton wool but if the sky happened to be overcast at the time they made the new fire by rubbing two sticks against each other and looked upon it as a bad omen when they were obliged to do this for they said the sun must be angry with them since he refused to kindle the flame with his own hand the sacred fire however obtained was deposited and Cuzco, the capital of Peru, in the Temple of the Sun, and also in a great convent of holy virgins, who guarded it carefully throughout the year, and it was an even augury if they suffered it to go out. Wives of the Sun in Peru These virgins were regarded as the wives of the sun, and they were bound to perpetual chastity. If any of them proved unfaithful to her husband the sun, she was buried alive, like a Roman vestal, and her paramour was strangled. The reason for putting her to death in this manner was probably, as at Rome, a recalcitrance to shed royal blood, for all these virgins were of the royal family, being daughters of the Incas or of his kinsmen. Besides tending the holy fire, they had to weave and make all the clothes worn by the Inca and his legitimate wife, to bake the bread that was offered to the sun at his great festivals, and to brew the wine which the Inca and his family drank on these occasions. All the furniture of the convent, down to the pots, pans, and jars, were of gold and silver, just as in the temple of the sun, because the virgins were deemed to be his wives. And they had a golden garden, where the very clods were of fine gold, where golden maize rooted stalks, leaves, and cobs, all of the precious metal, and where golden shepherds, with slings and crooks of gold, tender golden sheep and lambs. The analogy of these virgin guardians, of the sacred flame, furnishes an argument in favour of the view set forth in the preceding pages. For the Peruvian vestals were the brides of the sun. May not the Roman vestals have been the brides of the fire? Virgin Priestesses of Fire in Mexico and Yucatan On the summit of the great pyramidal temple of Mexico, two fires burned continually on stone hearths in front of two chapels, and dreadful misfortunes were supposed to follow if the fires were allowed to go out. They were kept up by priests and maidens, some of whom had taken a vow of perpetual virginity. But most of these girls seemed to have served only for a year or more until their marriage. They offered incense to the idols, wove clothes for the service of the temple, swept the sacred area, and baked the cakes which were presented to the gods but eaten by their priests. They were clad all in white, without any ornament. A broom and a censer were their emblems. Death was a penalty inflicted on the faithless virgin who polluted, by her incontinence, the temple of the god in yucatan there was an order of vestals instituted by a priestess who acted as lady superior and was deified after her death 
under the title the virgin of the fire the members enroll themselves voluntarily either for life or for a term of years after which they might marry their duty was to tend the sacred fire the emblem of the sun if they broke their vow chastity or allowed the fire to go out they were shot to death with arrows virgin priestesses of fire among the baganda amongst the baganda of central africa there used to be an order of vestal virgins Bakaja, who were attached to the temples of the gods their duties were to keep the fire of the god burning all night to see that there was a good supply of firewood and to watch that the suppliants did not bring to the dirty anything that was taboo to him these maidens were also said to have charge of some of the vessels all of them were young girls no man might touch them and when they reached the age of puberty the god ordered them to be given in marriage the place of a girl who thus vacated office had to be supplied by another girl taken from the same clan resemblance between the flamandilus of the romans and the agni hotri of fire priest of the brahmins we have seen that some people commit the task of making fire by friction to married men and following the opinion of other scholars i have conjectured that in some of the latin tribes the duty of kindling and feeding the sacred fire may have been assigned to the flamandilus who had always to be married if his wife died he vacated his office the sanctity of his fire is proved by the rule that no brand might be taken from his house except for the purpose of a sacrifice further the importance ascribed to the discharge of his duties is attested by another old rule which forbade him to be absent from his house in rome for a single night the prohibition would be intelligible if one of his duties had formerly been to superintend the maintenance of a perpetual fire however that may have been the life of the priest was regulated by a whole code of curious restrictions or taboos which rendered the office so burdensome and vexatious that in spite of the high honours attached to the post for a period of more than seventy years together no man was found willing to undertake it some of these restrictions will be examined later on the agni hortis or fire priests of the brahmins their similarity to the rules of life still observed in india by the brahmins who are fire priests agni hortis seems to confirm the view that the flamen also was originally a fire priest the parallel between the two priesthoods will be all the more remarkable if some scholars hold the very names brahman and flamen are philologically identical that of these brahmanical fire priests or agni hutterists we are told that the number of them nowadays is very limited because the ceremonies involve heavy expenditure and the rules which regulate them are very elaborate and difficult the offering of food to the fire at meals is indeed one of the five daily duties of every brahmin but the regular fire service is a special duty of the agnihotri in order that he may be ceremoniously pure he is bound by certain obligations not to travel or remain away from home for any long time to sell nothing which is produced by himself or his family to pay little attention to worldly affairs to speak the truth to bathe and worship the deities in the afternoon as well as in the morning and to sacrifice to his deceased ancestors on the fifteenth of every month he is not allowed to take food at night he may not eat alkaline salt meat honey or inferior grain such as some varieties of pulse millet and the eggplant he never wears shoes nor sleeps on a bed but always on the ground he is expected to keep awake most of the night and to study the shastras he may have no connection with nor unholy thoughts regarding any woman but his wife and he must abstain from every other act that involves personal impurity 
with these rules we may compare some of the obligations laid on the flamen dias in the old days as we saw he was bound never to be absent from his house for a single night he might not touch her in name raw meat beans ivy and a she-goat he might not eat leavened bread nor touch a dead body and the feet of his bed had always to be smeared with mud this last rule seems to be a mitigation of an older custom of sleeping on the ground a custom which is still observed by the fire priest in india as it was in antiquity by the priests of zeus at dodona similarly the priest of the old prussian god potrimpo was bound to sleep in the bare earth for three nights before he is sacrificed to the deity mode in which the agnihotri procures fresh fire by the friction of fire sticks every agnihotri has a separate room in his house where the sacred fire is kept burning in a small pit of a cubit square should the fire chance to go out the priest must get fresh fire from another priest or be cured by the friction of fire sticks arani these comprise first a block of sami wood prosopis spicigera in which a small hole is made emblematical of the female principle sakthiyoni and second an upright shaft which is made to revolve in the hole of the block by means of a rope the point in the drill where the rope is applied to cause it to revolve is called devayoni two priests take part in the operation for they begin they sing a hymn in honour of the fire god agni when the fire is being kindled they place it in a copper vessel and sprinkle it with powdered cow dung when it is well alight they cover it with another copper vessel sprinkle it with drops of water and sing another hymn in honour of agni finally the new fire is consigned to the fire pit according to another description of the modern indian fire drill the lower block is usually made of the hard wood of the kadira or kaya tree acacia kaitshu and it contains two shallow holes in one of these holes a revolving drill works and produces sparks by friction the other hole contains tinder which is ignited by means of the sparks this latter hole is known as the yoni the female organ of generation the upper or revolving portion of the drill is called the pramantha it consists of a round shaft of hard wood with a spark of softer wood inserted in its lower end one priest causes the shaft to revolve by pulling a cord while another priest presses a spike down into the hole in the block by leaning hard upon a flat board placed on the top of the shaft the spike is generally made of the people or sacred fig tree when it has become charred by friction it is replaced by another according to one account the fire is made in this fashion not by two priests but by the brahman and his wife she pulls a cord while he holds the borer in the hole and recites the spells necessary for the production of the fire the indian fire sticks made from the sacred fig and semi-wood this practice of the modern agnihotri or fire priest of india is in general accord with the precepts laid down in the ancient sacred books of his religion for these direct that the upper or male stick of the fire drill should be made of the sacred fig tree asvata and the lower a female stick of semi-wood prosopis spikigera and they draw out the analogy between the process of fire-making and the intercourse of the sexes in minute detail the male fire stick made by preference from a sacred fig tree growing as a parasite on the female semi-tree it deserves to be noted that the male fire stick was cut by preference from a sacred fig tree which grew as a parasite on a semi or female tree the reasons for this preference is obvious to the primitive mind a parasite clasping a tree with its tendrils is conceived as a man embracing a woman hence a pair of fire sticks made from a pair of trees thus interlaced 
will naturally possess the power of procreating fire by friction in an unusually high degree so completely in the hindu mind does the process of making fire by friction blend with the union of the human sexes that it is actually employed as part of a charm to procure male offspring such a confusion of thought helps us to understand the part played by the domestic fire in the ritual of marriage and birth as well as in the legends of the miraculous origin of the latin kings in ancient india the male and the female fire stick were identified with king Pururvaras and the nymph Ovazi, whose love and sorrows form the theme of a beautiful tale the greeks also preferred to make one of the fire sticks from a parasitic plant Like the ancient Indians, the Greeks seem to have preferred that one of the two fire sticks should be made from a parasitic or creeping plant. They recommend that the borer of the fire drill be made of laurel, and the board of ivy, or another creeper, apparently a kind of wild vine which grew like ivy upon trees. But in practice, both the borer and the board were sometimes made of other woods, among which buckthorn, the evergreen oak, and the lime are particularly mentioned. The reason for such a preference is the analogy of the union of the sexes. When we consider the analogy of the Indian preference for a boar made from a parasite, and remember how deeply rooted in the primitive mind is the comparison of the friction of the fire sticks to the union of the sexes, we shall hardly doubt that the Greeks originally chose the ivy or wild vine for a fire stick from motives of the sort which led the Hindus to select the wood of a parasitic fig tree for the same purpose. But while the Hindus regarded the parasite as a male and the tree to which it clung as female, the Greeks of Theophrastus's time seem to have inverted this conception, since they recommended that the board, which plays a part of the female in the fire drill, should be made of ivy or another creeper, whereas the borer, which necessarily represents the male, was to be fashioned out of laurel. This would imply that the ivy was a female and the laurel a male. Yet in Greek, on the contrary, the word for ivy is masculine, and the plant was identified mythologically with the male god Dionysus, whereas the word for laurel was feminine, and the tree was identified with a nymph. Hence we may conjecture that at first the Greeks, like the Hindus, regarded the clean creeper as the male, and the tree which it embraced as a female, and that of old, therefore, they made the borer of this phydrill out of ivy and the board out of laurel. Ancient Greek Fire Sticks if this was so, the reasons which led them to reverse the usage can only be guessed at. Perhaps practical convenience had a share in bringing about the change, for laurel is, as the late Professor H. Marshall Ward kindly informed me, a harder wood than the ivy, and to judge by general, though not universal, practice, most people find it easier to make fire by the friction of a harder borer on a soft board than by rubbing a hard board with a soft point. This, therefore, would be a reason for making the borer of laurel and the board of ivy. If such a change took place in the history of the Greek fire drill, it would be an interesting example of superstition modified, if not vanquished, by utility in the struggle for existence. End of section 12。Section 13 of The Golden Bough, Part 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. 
Chapter 17. The Origin of Perpetual Fires. The custom maintaining perpetual fire probably originated in the difficulty of making fire by friction. Whatever superstitions may have gathered about it in the course of ages, the custom of maintaining a perpetual fire probably sprang from a simple consideration of practical convenience. The primitive mode of making fire by the friction of wood is laborious at all times, and it is especially so in wet weather. Hence the savage finds it convenient to keep a fire constantly burning or smouldering in order to spare himself the trouble of kindling it. This convenience becomes a necessity with people who do not know how to make fire. Some races are said to be ignorant of the means of making fire. That there have been such tribes down to our own time is affirmed by witnesses whose evidence we have no reason to doubt. Thus Mr. E. H. Mann, who resided eleven years in the Andaman Islands and was intimately acquainted with the natives, tells us that, being ignorant of the art of making fire, they take the utmost pains to prevent its extinction. When they leave a camp intending to return in a few days, they not only take with them one or more smouldering logs, wrapped in leaves, if the weather be wet, but they also place a large burning log or faggot of suitable wood in some sheltered spot, where it smoulders for several days and can be easily rekindled when it is needed. While it is the business of the women to gather the wood, the duty of keeping up the fires both at home and in travelling by land or sea is not confined to them, but is undertaken by persons of either sex who have most leisure or are least burdened. The Russian traveller, Baron Michael Maclay, who lived among the natives of the Maclay coast of northern New Guinea at a time when they had hardly come into contact with Europeans, writes, It is remarkable that here almost all the inhabitants of the coast possessed no means whatever of making fire. Hence they always and everywhere carry burning or glowing brands about with them. If they go in the morning to the plantation and carry a half-burnt brand from the hearth in order to kindle a fire at the corner of the plantation, if they go on a longer journey into the mountains, they again take fire with them for the purpose of smoking, since their cigars, wrapped in green leaves, continually go out. On sea voyages, they usually keep glowing coals in a half-broken pot, partially filled with earth. The people who remain behind in the village never forget to keep up the fire. They repeatedly told him that they had often to go to other villages to fetch fire when the fires in all the huts of their own village had chanced to go out. Yet the same traveller tells us that the mountain tribes of this part of New Guinea, such as the Anglamana and Tayangamana, know how to make fire by friction. They partially cleave a log of dry wood with a stone axe, then draw a stout cord formed of a split creeper rapidly to and fro in the cleft, till sparks fly out and set fire to a tinder of dry coconut fibres. It is odd that the people of the coast should not have learned this mode of producing fire from their neighbours in the mountains. The Russian explorer's observations, however, have been confirmed by German writers. One of them, a Mr. Hoffman, says of these people, in every house care is taken that fire burns day and night on the hearth. For this purpose they chose a kind of wood which burns slowly, but glimmers for a long time and retains its glow. When a man sets out on a journey or goes to the field, he has always a glimmering brand with him. If he wishes to make fire, he waves a smouldering wood to and fro till it bursts into a glow. On frequent paths, crossways and so forth, you may often see trunks of trees lying which have been felled for the purpose of being ignited and furnishing fire to passers-by. Such trees continue to smoulder for weeks. Similarly, the dwarf tribes of Central Africa 
do not know how to kindle a fire quickly, and or to get one readily at any moment they keep the burning trunks or fallen trees in suitable spots, and watch over their preservation like the vestals of old. It seems to be at least doubtful whether these dwarfs of the vast and gloomy equatorial forests are acquainted with the art of making fire at all. A German traveller observes that the care which they take to preserve fire is extremely remarkable. It appears, he says, that the pygmies, as other travellers have reported, do not know how to kindle fire by rubbing sticks against each other. Like the Wembumba of the forest in leaving camp, take with them a thick glowing brand and carry it, often for hours, in order to light a fire at their next halting place. Fire kindled by natural causes was probably used by men long before they learned to make it for themselves. Whether or not tribes ignorant of the means of making fire have survived in modern times, it seems likely that mankind possessed and used fire long before they learned how to kindle it. In the violent thunderstorms which accompany the end of the dry season in Central and Eastern Africa, it is not uncommon for the lightning to strike and ignite a tree, from which fire soon spreads to the withered herbage, till a great conflagration is started. From a source of this sort, a savage tribe may have first obtained fire, and the same thing may have happened independently in many parts of the world. Other people perhaps procured fire from volcanoes, the lava which will, under favourable circumstances, remain hot enough to kindle shavings of wood years after an eruption has taken place. Others again may have lit their first fire in the jets of an inflammable gas which spring from the ground in various parts of the world, notably at Baku and the Caspian, where the flames burn day and night, summer and winter, to a height of fifteen or twenty feet. It is hard to conjecture how man first learned the great secret of making fire by friction. The discovery was perhaps made by jungle or forest racers who saw dry bamboos or branches thus ignited by rubbing against each other in a high wind. Fires are sometimes started in this way in the forests of New Zealand. It is also being suggested that savages may have accidentally elicited a flame for the first time in the process of chipping flints over dry moss or boring holes with hard sticks and soft wood. Many savages carry fire constantly with them as a matter of convenience. But even when the art of fire-making has been acquired, the process itself is so laborious that many savages keep fire always burning rather than be at the trouble of extracting it by friction. This, for example, was true of the roving Australian Aborigines before they obtained matches from the whites. On their wanderings, they carried about with them pieces of smouldering bark or cones of the banksia tree wherewith to kindle their campfires. The duty of thus transporting fire from one place to another seems commonly to have fallen to the women. A stick, a piece of decayed wood, or more often the beautiful seed stem of the banksia, is lighted at the fire the women is leaving, and from her bag, which in damp weather she would keep filled with dry cones, or from materials collected in the forest, she would easily, during her journey, preserve the fire got at the last encampment. Another writer tells us that the Australian native always had his fire stick with him, and if his wife let it go out, so much the worse for her. The dark brown, vividly looking core on the banks here is very retentive of fire and burns slowly, so that one of these little fire sticks would last a considerable time, and a bag of them would suffice for a whole day. The Tasmanians knew how to make fire by twirling the point of a stick in a piece of soft bark. But, as it was difficult at times to obtain fire by this means, especially in wet weather, they generally, in their peregrinations, carried with them a fire stick lighted at their last encampment. 
With them, as with the Australians, it was a special task for the women to keep the fire brand alight and to carry it from place to place. When the natives of Matterbert, of New Britain, are on a voyage, they carry fire with them. For this purpose, they press some of the soft fibrous husk of the ripe coconut into the coconut shell, and then place a red-hot ember in the middle of it. This was smoldered for three or four days, and from it they obtain a light for their fires, wherever they may land. The Polynesians made fire by the friction of wood, rubbing a score in a board with a sharp-pointed stick till the dust so produced kindled into sparks which were caught in a tinder of dry leaves or grass. While they rubbed, they chanted a prayer or hymn till the fire appeared. But in wet weather, the task of making fire was laborious, so at such times the natives usually carried fire about with them in order to avoid the trouble of kindling it. The Fugians make fire by striking two lumps of iron pyrites together and letting the sparks fall on birds down, or on dry moss, which serves as tinder. But rather than be at the pains of doing this, they carry fire with them everywhere, both by sea and land, taking great care to prevent its extinction. The Kangua Indians of Paraguay make fire in the usual way by the fire drill, but to save themselves trouble, they keep fire constantly burning in their huts by means of great blocks of wood. The Indians of Guinea also produce fire by twirling the point of one stick in the hole of another, but they seldom need to resort to this laborious process, for they keep fire burning in every house, and on long journeys they usually carry a large piece of smouldering timber in their canoes. Even in walking across the savannah, an Indian will sometimes take a firebrand with him. The Jaggers, a Bantu tribe of the Kilimanjaro district of East Africa, keep up fire day and night in their huts on account of their cattle. If it goes out, the women fetch glowing brands from a neighbor's house. These they carry wrapped up in banana leaves. Thus they convey fire for great distances, sometimes a whole day long. Hence they seldom need to kindle fire, though the men can make it readily by means of the fire drill. The tribes of British Central Africa also know how to produce fire in this fashion, but they do not often put their knowledge in practice, for there is sure to be a burning brand on one or another of the hearths of the village from which a fire can be lit, and when men go on a journey, they take smouldering sticks with them and nurse the glowing wood, rather than bear the trouble of making fire by friction. In the huts of the Oboos, on the lower Niger, burning embers are always kept and never allowed to go out, and this is a regular practice among all the tribes of West Africa who have not yet obtained matches. If the fire in a house should go out, the women would run to a neighbour's out and fetch a burning stick from the hearth. Hence, in most villages, fire has probably not needed to be made for years and years. Among domesticated tribes, are the Efix or Agalwa, when the men are going out to the plantation, they will enclose a burning stick with a hollow piece of a certain kind of wood which is the lining of its pith left in it, and they will carry this firebox with them. The Theft of Fire by Prometheus Before the introduction of matches, Greek peasants used to convey fire from place to place in a stalk of giant fennel. The stalks of the plant are about five feet long by three inches thick and are encased in a hard bark. The core of the stalk consists of a white pith, which, when it is dry, burns slowly like a wick without injury to the bark. Thus when Prometheus, according to the legend, stole the first fire from heaven and brought it down to earth, hidden a stalk of giant fennel, he carried his fire just as every Greek peasant and mariner did on a journey. When people settled in villages, it would be convenient to keep up a perpetual fire in the house of the head man. 
When a tribe ceased to be nomadic and had settled in more or less permanent villages, it would be a convenient custom to keep a fire perpetually burning in every house. Such a custom, as we have seen, has been observed by various peoples, and it appears to have prevailed universally among all branches of the Aryans. Arnobius implies that it was formerly practiced by the Romans, though in his own time the usage had fallen into abeyance. But it would be obviously desirable that there should be some one place in the village where every housewife could be sure of obtaining fire without having to kindle it by friction, if our own should chance to go out. The most natural spot to look for it would be the hearth of the lead man of the village, who would come in time to be regarded as responsible for its maintenance. This is what seems to have happened not only among the Herero of South Africa and the Latin peoples of Italy, but also among the ancestors of the Greeks. For in ancient Greece the perpetual fire kept up in the Pratanium, or town hall, was at first apparently the fire of the king's hearth. Hence the maintenance of a perpetual fire can be associated with chiefly or royal dignity. From this simple origin may have sprung the custom, which in various parts of the world associates the maintenance of a perpetual fire with chiefly or royal dignity. Thus it was a distinguishing mark for the chiefmanship of one of the Samoan nobility that his fire never went out. His attendants had a particular name for their special business of keeping his fire ablaze all night long while he slept. Among the gallows, the maintenance of a perpetual fire, even when it serves no practical purpose, is a favourite mode of asserting high rank, and the chiefs often indulge in it. The Chitomi, a grand pontiff in the kingdom of Congo, of whom we shall hear more hereafter, kept up in his hut day and night a sacred fire, of which he dispensed brands to such as come to ask for them and could pay for them. He is said to have done a good business in fire, for the infatuated people believed that it preserved them from many accidents. In Uganda, a perpetual sacred fire, supposed to have come down to earth with the first man Kintu, is maintained by a chief, who is put to death if he suffers it to be extinguished. From this sacred fire, the king's fire, Gombolola, is lighted and kept constantly burning at the gate of the royal enclosure during the whole of his reign. By day it burns in a small hut, but at night it is brought out and set in a little hole in the ground, where it blazes brightly till daybreak, whatever the weather may be. When the king journeys, the fire goes with him, and when he dies, it is extinguished. The death of the king is indeed announced to the people by the words, The fire has gone out. A man who bears a special title is charged with the duty of maintaining the fire, and of looking after all the fuel and torches used in the royal enclosure. When the king dies, the guarding of his fire is strangled near the earth. Similarly, in Dayao, a country to the west of Darfur, it is said that a custom prevailed of kindling a fire on the inauguration of a king and keeping it alight till his death. Among the Mokeles of Angola, when the king of Ambion or Sanga dies, all fires in the kingdom are extinguished. Afterwards, the new king makes new fire by rubbing two sticks against each other. Such a custom is probably nothing more than an extension of the practice of putting out a chief's own fire at his death. Similarly, when a new Muata Jamwal, a great potentiate in the interior of Angola, comes to the throne, one of his first duties is to make a new fire by the friction of wood, for the old fire may not be used. Before the palace gate of the king of Siam, there burns, or used to burn, a perpetual fire, which is said to have been lit from heaven with a fiery ball. Perpetual fire maintained by the chief called the Great Sung among the Manchas Indians. 
Among the Natchez Indians of the Lower Mississippi, a perpetual fire, supposed to have been brought down from the sun, was maintained in a square temple which stood beside the hut of the supreme chief of the nation. He bore the title of the great sun and believed himself to be a descendant or brother of the luminary, his namesake. Every morning when the sun rose, he blew three whiffs of his pipe towards it, and raising his hands above his head, and turning from east to west, he marked out the course which the bright orb was to pursue in the sky. The sacred fire in the temple was fed with logs of walnut or oak, and the greatest care was taken to prevent its extinction, for such an event would have been thought to put the whole nation in jeopardy. Eight men were appointed to guard the fire, two of whom were bound to be always on watch, and the great sun himself looked to the maintenance of the fire with anxious attention. If any of the guardians of the fire failed to do his duty, the rule was that he should be put to death. When the great chief died, his bones were deposited in the temple, along with the bones of many attendants who were strangled, in order that their souls might wait upon him in the spirit land. On such an occasion, the chief's fire was extinguished, and this was a signal for putting out all the other fires in the country. Every village had also its own temple, in which perpetual fire was maintained under the guardianship of a subordinate chief. The lesser chiefs also bore the title of sons, but acknowledged the supremacy of the head chief, the great son. All these sons were supposed to be descended from a man and woman who had come down from the luminary from which they took their names. There were female sons as well as male sons, but they might not marry among themselves. They had always to mate with a woman or a man of lower rank. Their nobility was transmitted to the maternal line that is the children of a female son. Both sons and daughters were sons, but the children of a male son were not. Hence a son was never succeeded by his own son, but always by the son of either his sister or of his nearest female relation. The Natchez knew how to produce fire by means of the fire drill, but if the sacred fire in the temple went out, they relit it, not by friction of wood, but by a brand brought from another temple or from a tree which had been ignited by lightning. In these customs of the Natchez, we have clearly fire worship and sun worship of the same general type, which means us again at a higher state of evolution among the Incas of Peru. Both sets of customs probably sprang originally from the perpetual fire and the chief's domestic hearth. Fire occurred before chiefs and kings as a symbol of royalty. When a perpetual fire had thus become a symbol of royalty, it is natural that it should be carried before the king or chief on the march. Among the Indians of the Mississippi, a lighted torch used to be borne in front of a chief, and no commoner would dare to walk between a chief and his torch-bearer. A sacred fire, supposed to have descended from heaven, was carried in a brazier before the Persian kings, and the custom was adopted as a badge of imperial dignity by later Roman emperors. The practice appears to have been especially observed in time of war. Amongst the Ovambo of South Africa, the chief appoints a general to lead the army to battle, and next to the general, or the greatest officer, is he who carries a firebrand at the head of the warriors. If the fire goes out on the march, it is an evil omen, and the army beats a retreat. When the king of Monomotapa, or Benomotapa, was at war, sacred fire was kept burning perpetually in a hut near his tent. In old days it is said that the king of Mombasa, in East Africa, could put an army of 80,000 men in the field. On the march, his guards were preceded by men carrying fire. High above the tent of Alexander the Great hung a fiery crescent on a pole, 
and the flame of it was seen by night and the smoke by day when a spartan king was about to lead an army aboard he first sacrificed at home to zeus the leader then a man called the fire-bearer took fire from the altar and marched with it at the head of the troops to the frontier there the king again sacrificed to zeus and athena and if the omens were favourable he crossed the border preceded by the fire from the sacrifices which thenceforth led the way and might not be quenched to perform such sacrifices the king always rose very early in the morning while it was still dark in order to get the ear of the god before the enemy could forestall him a custom maintaining a fire during a king's reign and extinguish it at his death even if it did not originate in a superstition would naturally lend itself to a superstitious interpretation the custom of keeping up a perpetual fire during a king's reign and extinguishing it at his death might lead to a belief that his life was bound up with the fire the distinction between the sign and the cause of an event is not readily grasped by a dull mind hence the extinction of the king's fire from being merely a signal of his death might come in time to be regarded as a cause of it in other words a vital connection might be supposed to exist between the king and the fire so that if the fire were put out the king would die that a sympathetic bond of some sort united the king's chief with the fire on his hearth was apparently believed by the ancient scythians for the most solemn oath was the king's hearth and if any man who had taken his oath forswore himself they believed that the king would fall ill the story of meleger whose life was said to be bound up with the brand plucked from the fire on the hearth belongs to the same class of ideas which will be examined at large in a latter part of his work whatever superstition of this sort gathered round the king's hearth it is obvious that he would be moved to watch over the fire with redoubled vigilance on a certain day the vestal virgins at rome used to go to the king of the sacred rites the successor of the old roman kings and say to him watchest thou o king watch the ceremony may have been a reminiscence or survival of a time when the king's life as well as the general safety was supposed to hang on the maintenance of the fire to the guardianship of which he would thus be impelled by the motive of self-preservation as well as of public duty when natives of the Kay islands in the east indies were away on a long voyage a sacred fire is kept up the whole time of their absence by their friends at home three or four young girls are appointed to feed it and watch over it day and night with a jealous care lest it should go out its extinction will be deemed a most evil omen for the fire is the symbol of the life of the absent ones this belief and the practice may help us to understand the corresponding beliefs and practices concerned with the maintenance of a perpetual fire at rome End of section 13say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill